The Supreme Court justices offered an opinion on gerrymandering this week. There were two maps in question, one in North Carolina and one in Maryland, um, that the nine justices looked at. This particular Maryland map involved the 6th Congressional District, of which Frederick County is a part of. Yeah, and so the the case in this this case extends back to to 2011 when the original maps were drawn actually in 2010 and then uh, kind of became part of what we would use in 2011. So I'll try to sum it up really really quickly. Um, but it challenges uh, the initial denial from the United States uh, District Court of Maryland um, that these maps could be used. So the the court denied an injunction to, to stop using of the maps. So the maps had been used in that time until uh, the Supreme Court case. And um, the hope was to overturn that denial at the Supreme Court level and have the Supreme Court issue an opinion which would set a precedent for what can happen uh, in cases of gerrymandering. And ultimately, uh, by a 5-4 vote, which was kind of a line along, they're not necessarily party lines, but along uh, their kind of viewpoint lines where we have a five uh, five more conservative uh, justices and four more liberal justices. Along that 5-4 to four line, um, the court issued an opinion to say that essentially they weren't going to do anything. And it poses political questions that um, go beyond what the Supreme Court should be able to rule on. And so to give people a little bit more of an idea of what happened at the Supreme Court, um, a little bit more in the background and what this means going forth, we asked a local Frederick County resident to come in and talk to us a little bit more about his role in this whole task force that uh, Governor Larry Hogan had set up about redistricting the Supreme Court case and gerrymandering in general. Hi, I'm Walter Olson. I'm a senior fellow at the Cato Institute, and I've also been co-chair of Governor Hogan's uh, two commissions on redistricting. Right, perfect. And so I understand you were in D.C. yesterday. Did that have to do with the decision? I was there at the Supreme Court steps uh, for the disappointing news to a lot of people in Maryland uh, that the court was going to uh, disallow any sort of uh, judicial remedy under the Constitution for partisan gerrymandering. So that spelled an end to the Maryland lawsuit, which is dragged on for some years now, and it spelled an end to that kind of litigation everywhere else, at least when it uh, was trying to invoke the U.S. Constitution. So you're there, and you're in D.C., and you're right by the Supreme Court. You know, when you hear this news, I guess first, how did you hear the news? On Twitter, same way as so many <laughs> other people, because the court doesn't have any s- system of messengers or runners to bring out major news. Everyone is sc- staring at their screen just as if they were at home or at the <laughs> office. But uh, word did eventually spread, and the um, uh, the big scene I have to say uh, on this was when they had oral argument in March, because first people knew in advance which date that would be. Uh, the, uh, when it comes to announcing the decisions, they keep postponing and postponing, and they, they whittle it down. This was the last day. So finally, by the last day, we knew it was going to be on Thursday. But without that ability to plan and schedule, there weren't the demonstrators and there weren't the celebrities. And in March, you had the surefire combination of Governor Hogan with Go- Governor Arnold Schwarzenegger. And so it was absolute catnip for the cameras, uh, uh, which, of course, loved Larry, but uh, it's not unfair to Larry to say they love Arnold <laughs> even more. <laughs> so when you hear this news or you see this news on Twitter, what were some of your thoughts that went through your head? First, I saw that it, all the suspense was over after uh, wondering, writing, waiting. Uh, in my next thought was not really surprised at all because the handwriting has been on the wall for years. Uh, the Supreme Court uh, has been backing off of its uh, previous view. Uh, for 30 years or so, it had been considered to be a uh, definite precedent that partisan gerrymandering was a constitutional violation of, e- of equal protection. And yet, in all that time, the court had never approved uh, fixing any state's boundaries. It had always said, well, yeah, in principle, it's wrong, but this state is okay, and that state is okay. Uh, and careful that you don't go too far next case that comes along. And as the composition of the Supreme Court has changed, it, you could see that 
uh, difference between Sandra Day O'Connor's dissent, uh, where she brought up her experience as a state legislator, saying, you know, look, I've done this kind of thing. I don't think she said she had committed gerrymanders, but she, she had certainly been there when they were redistricting, and keeping politics out of the process is more or less impossible, and you wouldn't like it if we did. Uh, so she was, uh, n- even so, uh, as as was her style, sort of soft-spoken and and cautionary. A few years later, when Nino Scalia had the next uh, opinion in the same line, he was much more outspoken, saying, look, we've been trying for a while now. We haven't got any uh, workable standard. Uh, The judges are very confused trying to apply what we have said. Let's just give up. And uh, that's kind of the forward summary, whether you like what happened at the Supreme Court the other day or not. Basically, they decided to just give up on remedying something that even Roberts, for the majority, admitted was bad for democracy, bad in itself, unfair for the targets. Uh, he concluded, and we could go into more detail if, if, if we wanted, uh, that the dangers of trying to fix it uh, would uh, also be se- severe, would lead the courts into um, p- perhaps being more politicized into uh, inconsistent outcomes, depending on which judge you got, into uh, opening the floodgates for lots of litigation. And these had been themes that had been there in case after case before. Uh, it was uh, clear that that side was gradually carrying the day. And it was one thing to point out here is that the court is not as split on this issue as on some others, because in her very interesting dissent, Elena Kagan um, uh, kind of granted the power of some of Robert's points. She said, uh, he's absolutely right that we can't let the courts be politicized by letting them get drawn into things where it could come out either way and they wind up ruling according to who appointed them. Uh, She said that would be a disaster. Uh, But she said that shouldn't make us give up because they continue to come up with new and better ways of handling these issues. And she pointed to the states, for example, which working with their state constitutions or sometimes with laws in the particular states have uh, been doing more to curb partisan gerrymandering in the states. So she said, uh, you're right to worry about these things, but you're wrong to despair that there is any sort of solution. Now, in in Kagan's um, dissent, I understand she kind of used some of Robert's language against him. Well, they're always doing that against each other. That's their favorite technique, in fact. But but after, uh, of course, quoting what the the court has said and and quoting what he himself uh, uh, said, she just got into the... uh, the fact that there is no real dispute about the seriousness of the challenge to democracy on this. And Roberts didn't try to defend the practice, and he didn't deny that it really undermines the legitimacy of the system. But uh, citing his own concerns, she tried to explain why uh, courts are not powerless to uh, keep from falling into some of those dangers. And, for example, on the floodgates to litigation business, she pointed out Uh, you don't have to uh, go out like uh, a crusader to rectify all the ills of the world in order to spot these two maps, North Carolina and Maryland, as worst of the worst of the worst. She said that the um, uh, one computer simulation found that the North Carolina map, uh, if you did 3,000 rolls of the dice with... random maps based on the announced criteria uh, that this map was worse than all 3,000. And she said, we we ought to be able to at least pick off the outlier cases like that. And that doesn't mean that we're going to get into the, um, uh, you know, call it a swamp. I I call it a land war in Asia of trying to, um, you know, get into the differences between a pretty good and, you know, slightly better or slightly worse uh, plan. She said, uh, Roberts is right to say that we should not try to fix all of the possible problems in this area, but at least we can fix the things that are so bad that it just jumps out at you. One of the things I thought was interesting in her dissent was she said something kind of along the lines of this is about the only constitutional violation that they're not going to kind of rule on. Do you agree with that kind of statement? And, th- and what do you think of that, I guess? 
Well, I think first she overstated it a little bit because if you look up the concept of political question in uh, uh, constitutional law books, there are a bunch of different things that they recognize uh, go against the Constitution, but which they don't feel they can fix. Things having to do with Congress violating its own procedures. Some of the, uh, the like impeachment is actually a question in the news where uh, if Congress does not arguably follow its exact procedure, the court will probably stay out of it as a political question. Uh, so there are a lot of things where there are constitutional violations without remedies. Nonetheless, uh, on the broader point, I think she's absolutely right that it should really bother us when we spot a constitutional violation that the courts are unwilling to remedy. It should force us to think about uh, the uh, if it's a violation, uh, what is supposed to be the remedy. And of course, gerrymandering raises the special problem that it relates to the uh, filling of the seats of the same people who are going to be deciding. So if you say leave it to the elected officials, uh, and I'm not just talking about Congress here, but let's say in a state legislature, uh, it's up to the North Carolina state legislature to fix the gerrymandering of the North Carolina state legislature itself. There's a circularity problem there. If it starts out uh, badly stacked, uh, or Maryland is another case that we might as well bring in since here we are in Maryland. <laughs> um, but uh, you are then expecting a branch of the government to um, correct the footing that it stands on itself, even though uh, that will often mean asking incumbent legislators to uh, work against their own self-interest. Do you, so if it's essentially what the court said was, this is bad, we know it's bad, everyone knows it's bad, it's not our job to fix it. So whose job does it become to fix it now? That is a question that we should all be thinking about. And uh, let me start, because I know we're going to get to Maryland uh, and the state legislatures uh, before we're done, but let me start with Congress, because uh, gerrymandering, of course, was known to the framers. Uh, the, uh, according to the old story, which, as far as I know, is true, uh, Patrick Henry tried to do James Madison out of a seat in the colonial era Virginia legislature by drawing him bad lines, and it didn't work. Uh, Madison won anyway. So they all had kind of grudges and bad memories of <laughs> these tricks being played. Uh, so they knew about it. And they, what they did in the so-called elections clause of the Constitution was, um, as with so many things, a careful compromise. It said that uh, the states possessed the power to um, uh, draw up rules for House elections. That's what's at issue here, because the Senate, of course, is elected by the state. Um, but the Congress shall have the power to prescribe, forget the exact wording, but basically to, to prescribe standards that the states then have to follow. So if Congress does nothing, then the states are all up to uh, their own devices. But Congress can step in. And Congress has used this power before in at various times in various ways. Uh, Congress has at different times said uh, you can't have at-large members, you have to elect them by district, or you can't have multi-member districts for the House the way that we have for the Maryland Senate uh, and uh, versus uh, Assembly. And uh, Congress has even, uh, for quite a while in the past, although no longer, they discontinued this, uh, Congress has even said that it, uh, the states have to follow compactness. Now, compactness is right up there as the number one principle of good districting. If you can uh, make people respect compactness uh, to a decent degree, you get rid of the worst gerrymanders. You would get rid of the North Carolina and, and Maryland ones, for example. And so... Right there, if you ask uh, who should step up, who is not fulfilling their responsibility, I would say the U.S. Congress uh, is uh, the most obvious candidate. Uh, they could uh, be pressing uh, right now, if they wanted to, a relatively simple bill saying we are using our authority under the Constitution's election clause to require the states to do these three things about house districts, compactness and maybe a couple of other ones. Uh, there are problems in pushing that too far in an ambitious direction. For example, there's a bill in Congress that would require all 50 states to set up uh, independent citizen uh, commissions the way California 
uh, in Arizona and some uh, other places have the way that Governor Hogan has proposed doing in Maryland. Now, that may be a good idea. I'm not arguing against it. But there's a constitutional reason why um, they might fall flat on their face if Congress tried to force all 50 states to do it. And it's the doctrine known as commandeering in, came up in the Obamacare case in which the court has said that uh, the federal government can't simply order states to uh, create new uh, departments and agencies. They, they can't reach inside states and, and um, uh, second-guess the procedures. The states have that much sovereignty that they're at least immune from that. So, But in the meantime, that leaves a bunch of things that Congress could do, and it would be pretty safely constitutional. So that's where I'd start for number one. Number two is... The state legislatures, of course, could head things off by doing the right thing in the first place. <laughs> <laughs> I know we, we wouldn't be talking about any of this. If well, the state what a revolutionary concept. If they hadn't been baldly misusing <laughs> their power, and I apologies if baldly has become an improper word, to, to, uh, unfair to the, the hair challenge. But, the, um, uh, but if it weren't for the states uh, behaving so badly on this, we wouldn't be here uh, talking about uh, remedies. So really, the, um, uh, even though c Congress is where I would uh, uh, like to point, uh, the real ultimate failing is that of state legislatures who um, are uh, being self-serving, uh, both when they draw their own legislative districts as playing a conflict of interest as they could be stepping into, and also when they uh, devise districts in the U.S. House of Representatives uh, in order to pursue uh, politics, as they do. So looking at this, um, because you had the Maryland case, we had the Democrats have gerrymandered, and mm -hmm. you had the North Carolina where the Republicans gerrymandered. W was there a winner when it came to our two parties in this decision, or are we all losers here? <laughs> well, I'm going to say that we are all losers, because I think that a fairer system benefits both parties. Now, People from the parties love to bicker about uh, who started it. Uh, answer, it's too, too long ago. The, you know, everyone started it. Uh, and uh, who is more sinful than, than who else? You know, the short version there is that at present there are more Republican gerrymanders. If you go back a generation, you would probably find more Democratic gerrymanders. But uh, there, it's like breaking up a nursery fight. You know, you know that they're both as guilty. You know, they, they've both taken as many cookies as they could get their hands on, and the Republicans at the moment happen to have more cookies stuffed into their jacket. Um, I tell Republicans wherever I go, yes, you may have to surrender more cookies at the moment to the teacher, but uh, you too will benefit from uh, a system where the voters have more confidence uh, in what's going on, uh, and especially in... Whichever state is in charge, uh, the, the, whichever party is in charge in the state, wh whether it be Republicans in North Carolina and Pennsylvania, uh, Democrats in Maryland, I think the voters remember if you've done the right thing before you were absolutely dragged out by, uh, you know, at, at two minutes to midnight uh, to, for, to have to do the right thing. The, um, there is every reason why, uh, a, even if you lose a few seats, it's uh, good to stay in front of voter opinion, which is very, very clear on this. V voters in Maryland, uh, in both parties and independents, are all overwhelmingly supported. So do the right thing. People might surprise you. This is kind of a looking forward question, and maybe it's a little early in the conversation, but I'm, I'm just curious. With the 6th District uh, in Congress for Maryland drawn the way that it is, and the potential of it to still be redrawn at the state level, uh, do you want, how do you think that would impact the 2020 election? Well, the 2020 election is the last one that's going to be done under the existing map because the census done next year will require uh, all states, including Maryland, to uh, redraw their congressional lines. So we know that there's going to be one more election uh, with the current lines, uh, for better or worse. You know, some uh, elected officials will be relieved about that, some will not, but the what happens with 2022 depends on how that map gets drawn uh, by the Maryland process, and that means that it is not too early for us all to be uh, 
in, uh, educating ourselves and involving ourselves in the fairness of that process, it will be here before we know it. And at that point, there are a couple of possibilities. Larry Hogan has urged the legislature to adopt an independent citizen commission, and I think he would be open to variations that would lead to fairness through some other route, but, but the legislature uh, has shown no interest in that. Now, if nothing is done to reform the procedure between now and then, then you go through the uh, particular uh, decision path uh, of the uh, prescribed by the Maryland Constitution, which on paper makes the governor very powerful because uh, under the last few governors before, o O'Malley and, and Glenn Denning, uh, they wound up with a great deal of power to just sort of write the maps behind closed doors. But of course, they had legislatures the same party as them. What we haven't had uh, any time in memory is governor of a different party than the legislature. And so a lot winds up depending on whether they could keep together a veto-proof majority uh, and impose maps uh, perhaps like the current one, or perhaps even worse, because you know every year the computer technology gets better uh, to make the maps even more extreme and unfair. So um, that is a question that uh, will be determined perhaps in part by where public opinion stands and whether or not people have forgotten about the issue, but also by changes in the majority party in Annapolis. Uh, and I have a couple of uh, data points that I, I love to put on the table when people are despairing and saying, oh, no, you know, the Mr. Uh, Mike Miller has never lost a round on this. He's in invincible. It's just going to keep on this way. A couple of things. First, when the Supreme Court ruled yesterday, uh, there were uh, immediate interviews with the heads of the two branches in Annapolis. And Mike Miller uh, <laughs> sounded, if I say so, a bit jubilant. He said, uh, you know, basically the courts have indicated what we did. Um, uh, I told you nothing was wrong. I'm, I'm paraphrasing. But it, it was a little bit of a victory dance. Meanwhile, Adrienne Jones, the recently elected speaker over on the House of Delegates side, said she was disappointed. Very different language. Actually, you'd, you'd think that uh, these uh, were opposite reactions. And I was interested in her reaction, first because it sounds much more like what almost everyone <laughs> I heard was saying. They were disappointed. Uh, they uh, weren't going to do any victory dance about the fact that a bad map had survived. But beyond that, she's new uh, in her job and I think wants to turn over a new leaf, wants to uh, get past or live down or whatever it is, some of the reputation for machine politics that the state has had in the past. So I was very interested in her comments there. Also, something happened in this latest legislative term that, again, could it be a straw in the wind? Could it be meaningless? But uh, in previous years, there had been uh, stylized uh, results on uh, reform legislation in this area where uh, any bills that the Republicans were behind uh, basically got no Democratic sponsors. Maybe there would be a maverick one or two, but by and large, the Democrats would not go along with any Republican proposals to fix redistricting. This year, that suddenly changed, and one of the bills, a reasonable middle-of-the-road bill having to do with just part of the problem, uh, all of a sudden it got, I think it was 18 sponsors, all from Montgomery County, all generally liberal. They all just, I'm guessing, perhaps, decided, you know, party discipline uh, has uh, ruled in the past. Uh, this is obviously a good idea. You know, let's get some dialogue going. Uh, they all went over and, and they co-sponsored a Republican bill. I thought, uh, you know, maybe things are changing because we know that there are, uh, you know, the Democratic Party is not a monolith by any means on this. And you've got within the Democratic Party uh, a lot of minority Democrats who have often felt, and I think quite rightly, that the maps that have come out of the Miller and Bush um, uh, leadership have sometimes not served minority Democratic interests quite as well as they might. Uh, so there's all of that awareness among minority Democrats, and there's also all this good government consciousness among a lot of Democrats of all races uh, that, uh, you know, the whole nation's been talking about this issue for years now, and Maryland has been uh, pointed at as uh, you know, th this absolutely awful example, uh, you know, let's change that. And I think that it's very powerful that uh, I think they hear from their constituents 
clearly. Um, if you want Maryland to, to be known for good government, as it is in a bunch of other areas, don't make this such a big exception. You you mentioned the machine politics, and I, I want to talk about that uh, kind of briefly because um, I, I would consider uh, Attorney General Brian Frosch kind of part of the, the Democratic machine, and he's the Attorney General. What role do you see him playing in the redrawing of the lines? We could Because <laughs> if I remember right, he was involved in the original drawing of the lines. Yeah. Frosch's role over the years is remarkable uh, and complicated, and he was, of course, involved in the original gerrymander, at which point he was the legislator. Uh, after that, he, uh, th- once he became attorney general, uh, it was generally expected uh, as lawyer for the state that he would uh, defend the uh, state's laws against constitutional challenge. Uh, attorneys general often have to do that even if they disagree with the thing. But the arguments raised by Frosch uh, it's now, of course, had, uh, with the last one, uh, quite a few rounds of litigation involving a lot of brief filing. And uh, the briefs that Frosch has submitted, uh, let's just look at the most recent one in this round of the Supreme Court, um, really did try to defend the fairness of the map and made all of these factual assertions that I just thought um, he didn't have to put in. Not one of the justices believed them. Uh, the... Uh, you know, what, why is he um, uh, bending over backwards, seeming to want a, an outcome in which this map survives, even if the court uh, remedies other maps in other states? So that, you know, you could explain that as, as uh, very partisan, uh, or maybe there's some other explanation. But then he comes out um, uh, after this decision yesterday, I think with a statement saying that he was disappointed that they didn't uh, announce a national standard where they could be remedied. And I just thought, <laughs> some contradiction goes with your job, sir, <laughs> but not this much contradiction. So you talked a little bit about how Maryland's kind of in a, in a unique situation that we have a Republican governor, mostly um, Democratic legislature. We also have a huge population that I think drives our state to look like it's mostly Democratic, even though you have Carroll County and, and Western Maryland that tend to be pretty Republican. But what about in parties in Maryland? Are you finding that they're like the Democrats are starting to split a little bit? I think, especially with Adrian Jones being elected. The parties versus the members of the parties are two different questions. And the party apparatus itself would be the last thing to change, I think, because if you listen to uh, what the institutional parties are saying. Of course, we know what the institutional Maryland Republicans are saying, which is we w- we've been robbed, you know, to fix this immediately. The institutional Maryland Democrats have been um, basically down the line supporters of the gerrymander, unwilling to concede anything at all to the critics of the gerrymander. And that's kind of how you expect institutional parties to behave. They're partisan. Now, if, if they're not going to be partisan, mm-hmm. who is? But uh, at the same time, they have to pay attention to changing views among their members. And that's why uh, I think it's significant that you see um, various signs in different ways that the Democratic uh, members, uh, the, the rank and file members of the legislature, uh, are uh, experimenting with um, speaking out for different views. They, they are more willing to say, that they are uh, disappointed in the, the uh, uh, in the failure of the challenge, for example. They are more willing to say that uh, there is common ground with Republicans to find better procedures that would lead to fairer outcomes. These are things that it's been very hard to break the uh, stone wall of uh, really disciplined opposition, because this is not just a question of what members privately believe, but um, they really have worried that if they spoke out, they would get um, at odds with the leadership, and things could follow from that, including everything from committee assignments to perhaps being drawn a bad district themselves, which very noticeably happened to uh, a couple of leading uh, Democratic mavericks last time around, like Senator Broshin. And is it that they're less afraid and thus more willing to speak out? Is it that uh, the changes within the Democratic caucus, which you can see on many other issues, uh, that this is one of the issues that is changing because of effectively an ideological shift? 
that I don't know, but uh, but I do think you see those those rumblings, those tectonic uh, sort of <laughs> bubblings uh, in the Democratic caucus that suggest that the, the earth may move at some point. So with, I think, I, I don't I don't want to speak for the legislature, but I would think majority of people in general think that gerrymandering is bad. But now that legislatures, I guess across the country really, know that you can essentially get away with it. Do you think this is a problem that gets worse before it gets better? We're going to see some really terrible maps in the next few years. Now, fortunately, it is not the case uh, around the 50 states that most of the legislators have a free hand to do their worst. Because uh, in many states, there is language in the state constitution that keeps them from doing that. In quite a lot of other states, although there isn't, necessarily constitutional language, there's language in the state statute books that says here's how it has to be done. And so because of that, the uh, uh, list of states where they can get away with uh, the worst sorts of things is not 50, it's not even 25, it's more like I think 15 or 18 or so. So you're going to see some attempts in the states that are already bad to get even worse. Uh, It's not going to necessarily affect uh, states in the middle of the pack. And in fact, there have been interesting wins, not just in the states where voters could put things on the ballot through the initiative process, which is where most of the big wins have occurred in this. But in Virginia, for example, uh, you had uh, some actual bipartisan endorsement of steps toward reform in the last Virginia session. New Hampshire is another state where uh, there was bipartisan support. And, and indeed, in uh, in Ohio, for example, where it did go on the ballot, you had significant support from politicians of both parties. So I think something is changing where uh, you, you know, we're going to have those bad examples go on for uh, uh, the indefinite future, perhaps until Congress acts. But uh, there's, there are going to be exceptions. Most states' uh, public opinion is going to uh, be pulling always in the one direction toward uh, pulling back from the worst abuses. And I think in a lot of states, public opinion is going to be heard. I hope Maryland too. And now just since we've kind of come back to Maryland and we are in Maryland, do you think that there is a trickle-down effect at all of this, of that if we can do it with our congressional districts, our county council can start looking at redistricting um, our county or even our, to our school system to redistrict and say it's okay to have crazy lines all over. Well, if you've seen the school districts maps. Well, and I, and I do know. I you know they're quite crazy I don't know that already. they're gerrymandered, yeah, but they're so, nuts. So school districts are a, a different kettle of fish, <laughs> and the, the legal considerations and the laws underneath them are, are super, super different. County council districts is interesting because um, by coincidence, I'm on the Charter Review Commission so I, uh, uh, for, for Frederick County, so I'm uh, catching up with the procedures by which Frederick County uh, draws its district lines, and by and large, from what I've heard, people were pretty happy with the five, the boundaries of the five district lines. They thought they hung together and made sense. Uh, but I know that there have been moves uh, in Montgomery County, in particular, which is exactly where you'd expect it to start uh, at at the county level, because uh, uh, there are a lot of. Um, uh, people familiar with the issue in Montgomery County. There's uh, so many people live in the districts in that much more populous county that uh, the stakes are high enough to be worth spending some money. And yes, if you move to a more carefully controlled system, you will sometimes wind up spending more money either on experts or on the cost of a citizen panel, you know, whatever whatever the thing is. But um, there are rumblings in Howard County, uh, and it would not at all surprise me if we had some examples in Maryland of uh, whether citizen independent dist- uh, uh, commissions or, or some other means, an attempt to bring more neutrality to the drawing of district lines. In Montgomery County, I'm pretty sure there have been complaints over the years from up county, from the people in Germantown and so forth, that the lines were drawn so that the well-known Montgomery phenomenon of people from Tacoma Park and, and two or three other communities very close to the Beltway uh, holding most of the seats, uh, uh, you know, they 
uh, they, they noticed that the districts were drawn in such a way as to make it a little easier for down county people to represent up county constituencies. And so they've got a real kind of grievance that may be driving it at, at some point. And in Frederick County, as I say, I have not heard any complaints about the fairness of the existing lines. And yet those lines have to change with every census, just like the federal ones do and just like the Annapolis ones do. Um, when they change, we will, every time they change, we have to confront the issues of who's making these decisions. Uh, uh, is there some way to keep it from being done in a self-interested way? Well, thank you so much for coming in. Uh, my pleasure. A quick heads up. We're going to be playing a clip from a presentation which contains a quite loud noise coming up in a couple seconds. So just letting you know you might want to turn on your volume. Now, what you just heard was a fire being set off by someone at a safety demonstration in Marriottsville earlier this week. Our very own city cops and courts reporter Jeremy Airy was there. And that particular firework was set off with a fake hand to show what kind of damage a hand can sustain if a firework blows up while it's still being held. In Jeremy's article, which is online at fredericknewspost.com, he also goes into some of the other damage you can sustain while using fireworks, including eye damage. He also spoke with a local fire marshal about the damage that people have sustained here in Frederick County and some that the fire marshal has seen throughout his years as a fire marshal. Now, the 4th of July is on Thursday, and so those who are looking to see fireworks can head down to Baker Park, where there will be a fireworks celebration after many hours of entertainment and food at Baker Park. Before we move on to 72 hours, we're joined today by the new News Post uh, editor, uh, Paul Milton. Paul, thanks for coming on. It's great to be here. Uh, just a, a quick background on, on Paul's uh, background of you know where he's coming from. Uh, Paul, you spent 30 years uh, in the business, in the industry, uh, several right, years, yeah. several years with um, the uh, community newspapers for Tribune uh, and the Tucson papers before that, as they kind of merged and consolidated. Mm -hmm. And then you uh, also are the past president of MDDC. Yes. So uh, a lot of experience in the industry. Um, and I guess our first question is, uh, what's it, what's it like to come to the News Post? Uh, it's well for me uh, because I was out of the business for about two years. It feels like it's coming home again. Actually, it's there's a lot of uh, commonality in, in covering communities. It's not just about. Uh, I mean, it's 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 very important to know the communities, which I intend to to kind of immerse myself into Frederick. It's not like I'm a, uh, a newbie to it. I've been, you know, I've been visiting the, the town, f you know, for most of my life. But uh, it's you know, it, you can apply the same philosophies if you believe in covering good local journalism, good local news, that quality journalism can be done no matter where you are. And my hope is to make the, uh, continue the, the, the tradition of the Frederick News Post to make it uh, uh, a very hyper-local, good quality journalism that covers Frederick like nobody else. And so why Frederick? Why did you want to come here? Well, you know, it's funny is that there were, uh, there were a few opportunities I had to look elsewhere. I mean, I'm, I'm, a, I'm a Maryland guy. I've lived here my whole life. Uh, and I left after I left the Baltimore Sun Media Group, which was very good to me for many years. Uh, I, I wanted to try something different, and, and to be quite honest, there, there weren't that many opportunities. Uh, when I looked at Frederick, and I, I remember uh, when I saw that there was an opening here, uh, it harkened back to the days from when I was involved with the Press Association, always re uh, realizing just how good of a newspaper there is it, there is here. And uh, for the opportunity to join something that's already established, but but also have the opportunity to uh, put my own stamp on it was just uh, an opportunity that I, I couldn't uh, I, I, I couldn't turn down. What do you view as the the role of a community newspaper that we play in in Frederick County? Well, I mean, any good community newspaper should reflect. The, the area that it covers. It should uh, be a, a critic at times. It should be a, a, a supporter at times. It, it, should, it should be a place that if anything happens in Frederick, our goal should be that it should, you should be able to find it either in our, our newspaper, our websites, our podcasts. There should be some way that you'll be going to be able to learn a little bit about, uh, about the community that you live in. And it's also a chance for us to um, entertain a little bit too. And I don't mean entertain like create by and our creative stories, but I think it's how you tell good quality. You know, good quality journalism comes from being able to tell a story in a way that that uh, sometimes brings a smile to your face, sometimes brings uh, some anger to you. It depends on uh, what the what the point of the story is. But it should it should be a way to make sure that that uh, 
the people that read or the people that listen are are uh, are, are are learning something every day. And so now it, it's the anniversary of the shooting in Annapolis, mm-hmm. and um, we have a president that sometimes uh, calls us the fake news media, or if you have other people, even here in Frederick, who will reference fake news media. So why does journalism matter? Well, I think it's one of those. It's it's. Uh, we had a chance earlier today, uh, today being the anniversary, to uh, to take a moment to remember the folks at the Capitol. Some of those people were. Uh, I wouldn't go as far as saying friends of mine because I didn't know them that well, but they were colleagues of mine when, uh, back when I worked at the, uh, the Baltimore Sun Media Group. And it's, it's, it strikes at the heart of, of a community when, it, uh, when, when these kinds of things happen. I mean, crime happens every day, but for people to get to that level of anger over, uh, uh, over news or not believing that uh, something is true, uh, we are... This is one of the few professions that is actually talked about in the Constitution when you talk about a freedom of press. And uh, for for society to really succeed, you need to have have a press uh, to 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 do the things that I was talking about earlier, which is to provide uh, an actual kind of independent verification of government and of all the other things that go on in our lives. Now, I will say that comes with a great responsibility on the media's part. There are some media outlets that are not particularly uh, 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 unbiased and uh, it's it's uh, and that's on both sides of the equation and it's our goal to make sure that we uh, we uh, get rid of that bias uh, when we come to work every day to kind of be as independent and as down the middle in in what we do now of course on the opinion page we're occasionally going to have a commentary but they'll be well labeled so people will know what's opinion and what's fact Uh, it is disheartening to see uh, whether it's the current administration or, or, or however you want to label it, that uh, this idea of fake news, I think it's, it's dangerous when, when people don't disagree, you know, that people, it's all right to have, for people to have disagreements. It's what, one of the things our country is based on, but it's not good for people to have those disagreements about what the facts are. And it really, it, 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 it really is just a lack of credibility on some parts. And, and when you look at the president or we, like, when you look at other folks, um, it's a... Um, it's a difficult. Uh, it, it's difficult when you have people in power, uh, basically writing off things that are that are truthful and just blaming blaming them as being fake. It's just because they don't want to believe it. And sometimes uh, the the truth hurts, and 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 you have to t- you have to be brave enough to speak the truth. And I think that's what good journalism is. So I know we said five questions, but we've got two more for you. So we're gonna <laughs> okay. go. We're gonna go to six. Uh, but these are a little bit more fun. Uh, so just to give our readers kind of an idea mm-hmm. of, of who you are personally outside of the the journalism sphere um three people you want you would like to have dinner with (laughs) dead or alive wow um that's um that's difficult i think that um i'm a i'm a historian Uh, i have minored that in history i mean in in, in college i think that i've always i've always wanted to have a chance to sit down with abraham lincoln and and i think that that's just he was a man who was uh, tested quite a bit in in his life because of uh with the issues of the Civil War and, and, and an attempt to kind of bring people together. I'd love to know what he has to say about what to, what's going on today. Um, I'm a music fan, so I would probably like to have uh, lunch with uh, probably uh, Paul McCartney or John Lennon because I'm a, I'm a Beatles fan. And, um, and, and, and on a personal note, uh, I, you know, I lost my dad when I was in my early 20s and certainly would be nice to sit down with my dad again and have dinner. All right. And, and just I know you're new to the area. Mm-hmm. But so far in your experience, um, what's one meal that you really enjoyed in a, at a Frederick establishment or one meal that you're hoping to have at a Frederick establishment? Um, you know, it's interesting. I'm, I'm ha- I'll am I'm be in town this weekend again to, to, uh, to have dinner if, as long as the heat kind of uh, stays away. Uh, but I was I was in town last weekend and I went to uh, uh, Brewer's Alley and I had a great meal. Uh, and it was just, something is very simple. It was a simple burger. I was with uh, members of my family and I know that other people had a, a great lamb dinner and a great salad. And and we all kind of because we were new to the place, we all kind of like shared a little bit of each other's meals. And that was a great time. And it was a good place. And it was it was uh, it never ceases to amaze me just how busy downtown Frederick is. And. Uh, and I think that for people that people here probably appreciate it, and that's why they go to it all the time. I think it's still one of those hidden gems in the in the in the region that uh, more people need to know about. Brewers Alley, definitely known for the burgers. So <laughs> go get one on the recommendation of the new News Post editor. <laughs> there you go. Yes. Paul, thanks for joining us. All right, thank you. So this week we have 
Features Editor Mallory in here to talk to us a little bit about what's going on with 72 Hours this week. Hi. So can you tell us a little bit about the cover story this week? Um, yes, the cover story is about the Contemporary American Theater Festival. Um, it is in at Shepherd University in West Virginia. Um, they've been doing it since, I believe, the 80s. And um, there are six plays that are going to be featured and um, they're going to be um, performed over and over again for like throughout the entire month pretty much it starts friday and goes through july 28th and um colin mcguire um wrote a piece about like the plays and um what's going to be happening in each of one of them and they they sound pretty interesting so and i know a lot of people go there and they're kind of it's kind of like a big deal like the festival is kind of a big deal so yeah and one of the directors is actually uh, who directed one of the plays um is director of Big Little Lies, which is a big show that everybody's watching lately. So <laughs> I thought that was really interesting. He's got a Q&A with him. It's going to be in another um, issue coming up later in 72, like during the festival. So it's um, pretty interesting. Oh, that's pretty cool. I, I know I'm not on the Big Little Lies train yet, but I know many people in the office <laughs> what are. What is Big Little Lies? It's, it's a show based off of a book. Um, I read the book first, and now it's in its second season. The show has gone past the book, so it's not as good as the first season, in my opinion, but it's, like, it's really good. So the director, <laughs> one of the directors down there directed this show, but is directing yeah. a new, a yes. different play for this festival. Actually, he might be a writer, but, um, sorry, but, <laughs> um, yeah, so he, he works on both of them, I know that, so, yeah. Well, that's pretty cool. Yeah, so he's, he's a big name person. <laughs> All right, and so besides the cover story, I know that you switched things up a little bit this week. So, what uh, are some of the different features we might see this week? Um, one thing that is different because Kate was on vacation for two weeks, so we had to bring in some other people to write some things. Um, Steve Bonell, our county reporter, actually did a really interesting food feature, um, food and drink feature. He went out to four uh, downtown bars um, that are kind of considered just regular sort of dive, like. No, they're dives. Oh, <laughs> I don't know if they all are, but dive bars. Um, and he just basically like talked about a, a night out at each of the bars and um, kind of what he saw, like what the service was like and what people were like. And um, he got the same thing at each one. So it was uh, Jameson on the rocks. But it, it's an interesting little feature. Um, Good for Steve. Yeah. That's what you drink when you've had a long week. Yeah. <laughs> Um, but yeah, it's it's a good it's a good feature. So if anyone's ever read him his stories in county government, they can see him doing something a little bit different this week. So it may be the county government that that led to that. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yes, the um, people who are in the county government will especially appreciate that. I'm sure. Um, and so besides that, was there anything else that was new to this issue? Um, I. Um, Alan actually wrote a story this week, so. You can talk about that a little sure. bit. <laughs> sure. Uh, we're going to stick with the alcohol train, I guess. Um, Old Mother, the brewery on uh, recently, in the last year, moved to North Market Street, is going to be featured in an upcoming Netflix series called American Road Trip. And the uh, series focuses on, um, it picks a, the towns it travels through, it picks a food place and a bar place. And uh, the bar place kind of takes on a new meaning, whether that's a brewery, a distillery, a winery, or a old-fashioned kind of traditional bar is just up to the the producer uh but the um i spoke with the owner uh co-owner keith marku of old mother uh just about his place and what kind of opportunity this brings uh for his bar as kind of a road trip destination and it was funny um when i walked in i walked in a little bit before they opened it around two i walked in a little bit before two and sat down with keith and after i walked in a sea of, uh, this was about 1.57, about three minutes before they opened, a sea of like 15 men opened the door and they're like, are you guys open yet? And the ladies let them, let them in, you know, it was a little bit before opening time, but whatever. Um, and so they all made this road trip, road trip, I guess, if you want to call it that, bus trip uh, from Potomac and it was about 20 people. So it was kind of the road trip that spotlighted uh, the fact that they're a road trip destination, which was, I thought was pretty interesting. Um, yeah, so look out for that on, on Netflix at some point. There's not a a release date for the series yet, so uh, something's kind of up in the air. And Old Mother was just recently featured as well. Yes, they had a pride beer. Um, they put glitter in it, and 
obviously drinkable glitter. <laughs> um, I think it's their it's a rosé type beer. I've heard it's very good. Um, people in the office said it's really good, and they put glitter in it for Pride Month. So, and Alan, have you had this beer? I haven't. You know, they've actually come out with a lot of beer in the last couple of weeks that I have not had a chance to try because I haven't been able to get over there. Um, but I want to try just about everything they they make. So I'm oh. a little bit behind. All right. Well, yeah. we'll we'll check in in a couple of weeks. <laughs> And do we have any advice this week? Yes, we do. Um, Alan gave some great advice um, about <laughs> a question somebody had sent I, in. Yeah, yeah, I guess you could call it that. Uh, <laughs> we had a, uh, I mean, uh, presumably a woman, I'm not actually sure, they don't identify themselves, um, who's been having problems with a friend who has been, and the friend is a woman, who has been uh, kind of going after the influencer lifestyle, I guess, and how that has impacted their friendship and that she she doesn't really want to spend time with her friend who wants to be this influencer. Um, and so I advised her uh, mostly, you know, do do what pretty much what I tell everybody to do is do what you feel like makes you the happiest. But uh, also as friends, we, we do have obligations to support our friends. And if this is something that your friend is going after, um, you should support it. But that doesn't mean you have to spend time with her either um you know i actions have consequences i've it's always kind of my thing is if somebody chooses to do this they have to be able to deal with the ramifications of choosing to do that um so that that was pretty much my advice in a nutshell i actually can't remember what what kate wrote i did read it uh, just to make sure i didn't give the exact same advice but yeah i mean me and kate are kind of cut from similar cloths in a lot of ways and so just looking back at you know the questions that you've had to answer so far with this advice column thoughts on how you've given out advice so far or be shocked by some I, of the questions no i mean i'm not necessarily shocked by the questions um i'm finding really common themes and i kind of just like brought that up that you know i'm actions have consequences i i'm always uh, i find myself saying that a lot i also find myself telling people just i mean make the decision based on what you want to do to live a happy life i think that's hugely important uh whether or not you're going to piss somebody else off that's in your family or you know upset a friend or upset somebody you didn't even know about like with this cat question we had last week which i thought was ridiculous but um yeah you know do the things that i you feel like are going to make you happy and i feel like that's kind of my my go-to answer i mean if you're doing that who cares what everybody else thinks right perfect And Mallory, anything else we should um, know about? Just one other thing, because the issue is coming out on the 4th of July. We have a little photo page with um, different photos from our photographers from the 4th of July in the past. And we got a few submissions. Um, really cute. We had some kids and dogs with flags and different stuff like that. So, um, And there'll be more online, too. There's only two pages in the print version, but there'll be a photo gallery online. So if people want to see cute images from the 4th of July. And send us some this. on yes. Thursday. Yeah. Um, send them on because they can go online anytime so you can just keep sending them too so alright perfect well as always you can pick up 72 hours on newsstands on Thursdays or check um, fredericknewspost.com on Thursdays as well yep. alright thank you so much right, thank you Frederick Uncut is produced by me Alan Etzler and me Heather Mangilio and edited by Graham Cullen we'll see you next week <laughs>